This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode two. In this episode, I'm talking to Ola Shahin, who is a Palestinian Kiwi. Welcome, Ola. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak and share my story. I think that's quite important. It's such a pleasure to have you here, honestly. Let's start with your story. Tell me, where did you grow up? What shaped you? How did it all begin for Ola? So I was born in Kuwait and migrated over to New Zealand when I was five. We moved here because of the Civil War at the time um, and... My parents just wanted to better our lives, I guess. Uh, we came to New Zealand in 1998, and all I do remember is growing up, I was the only ethnic person around. There were other, like, Samoans and Māori, but I f- still felt like I was a bit different. And, a, and I grew up in a very white area in West Auckland. I've got three brothers and two sisters, so I grew up in a really big family. We were all in a small house of a three-bedroom house. And at the time, my dad couldn't practice in medicine because it wasn't, even though he had worked for 20 years in Kuwait Hospital, it wasn't recognized that he had a proper degree. So he had to re-study. And so he was working as a taxi driver for a lot of the time. So we weren't living off a great salary it was a small salary between eight of us and um, my mum stayed at home and took care of us yeah how was like were you close with your siblings throughout you know the move and I don't remember being close to them I remembered being a little bit bullied by them I was in between the three boys and so I was like the little tomboy that wanted to do all the boy stuff that wasn't really included by my brothers because I was a girl. Do you remember much of like that stage of moving and being here and like the first few years? I just remember starting school. So school starts usually in Kuwait, it starts at six years old. And so my parents had thought, you know, I'd have a year in kindy before I actually started school. And when I got here, they were kind of in shock that I had to go straight into school. And I had zero English, like all I have memory of is me crying and pouring my eyes out and hitting into the door. I just have this memory of like hitting, like crying so much that I flung my head to the door. They would bring my older brother to come talk to me in Arabic because I could understand Arabic, but I couldn't understand a single word of English. Like I just didn't have that vocab at all. Um, so it was quite daunting from memory. You know, I actually, what kind of comes up for me is something that I haven't thought about much or haven't asked but because I moved here when I was 16 and I moved on my own but I could understand like I could already speak and understand a bit of English my mom and my two brothers followed me to New Zealand five years after I moved here and my little brother was four and he went to I think it was kindy yes he went to kindy and yeah he knew 
zero English. And there's a few kids there as well of different um, ethnicities and backgrounds who also couldn't speak to each other, but also couldn't speak English. And I was wondering, like, you know, um, because it seems like those few weeks or months or what for some, see, like from the outside, it seems quite like a traumatic experience of you know, being a kid in a different place, not being able to speak the language. Do you feel like it, in some way, like, how do you feel like it affected you? Looking back on it, or like trying, like talking about it to my therapist these days, I kind of didn't feel like I fit in, you know? And it was like the start of not fitting in um, and not belonging anywhere. It was just the whole, you, it starts with something so simple, like not even being able to communicate with someone. You no longer belong. Being a different colour, you no longer belong. And I think that was the start of it. Did you have any, like, people or moments, if you remember, from through childhood, but also, like, maybe into teenagehood, that, like, maybe small, even, could be small moments, it could be big, that made you feel like you belong? Maybe people? I had friends, I had friends that were like me. Like, I had a best friend who was also Palestinian, and she had moved to New Zealand like um early on as well and I just remember like when I was with her I just felt like I belonged and it was everything was fine because she knew how things were like she was like me I think I also like on the sports field probably sports field is where I also felt like I belonged um I played kiwi tag I played netball I did sprinting and so I think when I was out and doing stuff, I felt like I was belonging, but day to day, I wouldn't say that I felt like I belonged. What did you imagine yourself? What did you, yeah, what did you imagine yourself being or doing in this, I guess, new place? Yeah, that's a really difficult question because I don't think I ever had a set thing I wanted to be. Like, I never wanted to be a doctor or an engineer or like, I never had that in my mind at any point um but I do remember like going and switching and being like I want to be a baker and then going and saying I want to be a chef and then my parents being like no no you go get a degree first and then you can be whatever you want (laughs) such a uh, classic (laughs) (laughs) it is it is um because you did an engineering degree is that right yeah, I did. How come? Was it parental influence? How did you end up doing studying engineering? It's interesting because I I knew I liked maths and physics and that's what I was good at. And when you put maths and physics together, it was engineering. But I just remember telling my parents that, you know, I'm going to do engineering, I'm going to study engineering. And I'm not very – I don't have a good study ethic. And I remember my parents being like, don't do it because you're just going to pull out after the first year. You're not going to enjoy it. It's not going to be for you. And I just remember being like, you know what? I'm going to prove them wrong. Like, I'm going to prove them wrong that I can do this. And, yeah, went into engineering, and after the first year, I I didn't like it. (laughs) But I was like, I'm not giving up on this now. (laughs) I stuck with it, and I graduated after four years of it. And now I'm working in it, but... Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a process. You know, when people people talk about their careers and like how they've always known that they've wanted to be something, all I know that it, that all I've known is that I just wanted to prove my parents wrong. 
I always feel like I've never gotten to their expectations and their expectations have always been quite high. And so like for me, it was always like, I'm going to prove to them that I can do this and I can be better than what they expect. And I felt like I always missed that mark a lot. So engineering was one of those things that I was like, this is where I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) There were definitely comments that were made here and there of like what they wanted me to be like and what they wanted to see me as and, you know, to be a good Muslim and to be successful and to be modest and all this other stuff. There were always those comments that were said. But then I would say that there were a lot of things that they just kind of expected and expected me to know that I wanted, like that they wanted that from me. When it comes to, you know, like, I guess, belonging, because that's, you know, if you think about this big subject, it can sort of extend to belonging in the country, belonging in your family, belonging in your degree. Did you feel that sense of belonging when you were doing your degree? Because it's also, you know, just from knowing the technical side of university and how much it's heavily gendered. How did you feel doing your degree? Did you feel... Um, in terms of belonging, I don't think I felt like I belonged there in terms of I I felt like I belonged there in terms of my ethnicity and um who I was and the people around me but I did never felt like I belonged in terms of my smartness and my intelligence which is quite interesting because like looking back on it now it's just like I felt like I was always the dumbest and I always felt like I never had intelligence and I couldn't do things the right way. Um, but I can look at it now and think, actually, <laughs> I did have intelligence. I just didn't study as hard and I didn't enjoy it as much as I could have. Like you said, there's all these different types of belongings, whether it's in your family or in your degree. And yeah, I didn't felt I didn't feel like I belonged. I always felt like I wasn't smart enough. And I think it just came down to imposter syndrome. Um, And I didn't even know what imposter syndrome was till recently. And when someone explained it to me, I kind of was like, oh, wow, I've been living this my whole life. I think it was quite a few different things that shaped me into who I am. And I think I'm still being shaped. Um, I don't think it's a, it's just one part of your life that you just become who you are and then you stay there. I think you're constantly changing. You know, Ola, recently I went to this event with friends and we discussed some things about how, like, what shaped us as into adults that we are today. Uh, and I know there's so many things in life that shape us into who we are, but for me what stood out was, you know, growing up in Kazakhstan and then moving to Western country and feeling like I have to change my surname to be more, I don't know, accepted or fit in. Um, my badass single mom who, you know, raised us. Domestic violence that she experienced, that we experienced. You know, there are so many things, that small things that shape you into who you are, but those are some of the big things that came up for me that kind of made me into a person that I was today. So what I wanted to ask you is, like, what would be some of your things that kind of stand out to you when you think about what made you um, into an adult that you are today? I would say like my ethnicity shaped me a lot yeah it I can relate in that not wanting to be ethnic 
I used to dye my hair. I still dye my hair, but not for the same reasons. But I used to dye my hair because I hated looking Arab. I just didn't want people to know that I was Arab. Um, and it's this whole like wanting to be white and this whole society wanting us to look a certain way. Um, and so that shaped me quite a lot. The My depression would have shaped me more than I would like to think um, or to give give it credit for. I think I spent years holding hands with depression and it becoming my life. That also my, like nature, nature's shaped me. I didn't realize how much I needed nature in my life, I guess, but it's made me into a different person and calmed me down and helped me breathe, I guess. Sports, sports shaped me. Or not really sport itself, but the people around it and the community it holds. It's easy to put it into little boxes of like, this has shaped me and this has shaped me. But also at the same time, there are little things that happen while you are just living life that actually can change your life. Like you can hear a quote a million times and it won't change you, but you can hear it in a different circumstance and it can completely change your mind and change your living. And I think it's just those moments. Have you had any recent thoughts or a situation or something that happened that you, with a, you know, um, in the positive um, way left something like wonderful with you uh, or in a challenging way left something challenging with you? Like I get misdiagnosed. My mental health gets misdiagnosed all the time. Um, I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder about six years ago. And I've seen therapists since then that have told me, no, you don't have it. And something that's, yes, like when you're talking about it, it kind of brings up this moment with my therapist um, who was telling me that she thinks I have ADHD. So I've not been screened for it or diagnosed yet. But I was talking to a friend about it. And he was saying, how amazing is it to have ADHD, though? There are so many great things that come with ADHD. It's not just this negative, like, it's not a negative mental health issue. There are things that come out of it that make you who you are. And that, yeah, that stuck with me. Like, I think it changed my perspective on mental health. Like, we always talk about, oh, how this person has bipolar and this person has borderline and we have all these negative connotations that come with it and negative outlook on someone like if I hear someone's got bipolar I'm always like oh my god you know like it's an instant reaction and it's so so horrible because at the end of the day someone that has bipolar actually has so many beautiful features that come with bipolar you know Mm. wow I haven't yeah that's a beautiful reframe I like because you're right Uh, most of the time when it comes to mental health or neurodiversity it's very like oh this is all the challenges people have which you know that that's also obviously true in many cases but i have many many friends who have different neurodiverse um different types of neurodiversity or mental health that really love some parts of it that they find it very personal and unique to their personalities and their characters and we are for story you're working on this um another series that a friend who has autism wanted us to help her with, which was about autism. And we were talking how when it comes to neurodiversity or mental health in the media, it's severely overrepresented by Western 
narratives. And I was kind of wondering whether it's like partly visibility, partly, you know, classic <laughs> westernization of everything we uh, end, but also partly how much we talk about it in communities that are not, you know, like in ethnic communities. Yeah, I think it's the la- like lack of conversation in ethnic communities, to be fair. Um, when I first started having depression, I told one person um, and I couldn't tell my parents. And I remember I made a comment to my parents and they their first reaction was, oh, you're just not religious enough. Um, and it wasn't until I went to end my life in the bush that they took it seriously and started having those conversations. But even now, <laughs> it's been, what, five, six years, they will still say comments that are very harmful uh, in regards to mental health or, like, attacking my mental health in a way. But I don't think they know that they're doing it. I don't think they understand mental health. They never really grew up with it uh, or the importance of it. But I, yeah, like when I started writing my blog, I had a lot of ethnic people coming out and saying, oh, I feel the same way or I've got the same condition and I've not talked to anyone about it. And it's just a suppression of suppression that comes with being in an ethnic family makes it difficult to open up about that stuff. I will now like say like I'm going to go to my therapist and they understand I go see a therapist and they're okay with that. And they understand I need to. But before that, I would have never even said the word therapist at home. <laughs> what was your? What did you write in your blog about? I wrote about the day that I went to go in my life and how things changed while I was in the bush and things that changed after I came out of the bush and how those conversations, yeah, it didn't become any easier. Just kind of perspective on mental health from someone that was going through it day to day rather than the whole narrative of I had mental health and now I'm fine (laughs) things are great this whole like (laughs) narrative of you can go through mental health and you can come out the other side absolutely unscathed I hated hearing those stories and so I wanted to put out a perspective of someone that was going through it day to day it was difficult but it was also something I felt like I needed to do. It doesn't matter what happened on the outside. It doesn't matter what happened the few weeks before and what you think is wrong with me. This is what's wrong with me. And this is my story. And that's why I started it. So I I was completely open about it being me. How did you find the, because you know how you said that people reached out to you who were also from ethnic communities who said that they really resonated. Have you had any older folks maybe or for older generation reaction anyway no no I've not um they were all pretty much my age I've had comments I mean even my dad commented on one of my blog posts which was weird because we'd never talk about it but he'd he'd read my blog posts I mean it was a way of like I guess for me to communicate about my mental health to my parents without having to do it face to face (laughs) we all find interesting ways and tools yeah (laughs) we do we do how do you reckon or what have you seen because this is this topic is so 
oh, like prevalent. I mean, mental health has become almost a buzzword these days, right? Like everyone's talking about it. And there is a lot of maybe misconception, misunderstanding, like with everything else. But um, in terms of ethnic community, there's something that came up a lot. And I definitely can see the conditioning that like our parents and their parents have gone through. From one perspective, one hope I have, like maybe it is just generational. Maybe it is just, you know, now that if we know and talk more about it, it's going to be okay with this now, uh, with our generation and generations younger than us. But but is it? Do you think it's, do you think from your, what you've seen and, you know, people reaching out and blog and stuff, do you, do you have the same hope or do you think this might be, we need to do way more work? Uh, th- that's a, that's a really difficult one because you, generational trauma is real, right? Like, it's 100% there and a lot of ethnic communities will have generational trauma from their parents having to fled, like parents who have fled war and so it's there and if I find a way to stop generational trauma then my kids and their kids will not have to go through that and I think it's a chain that needs to be stopped but it doesn't mean that the generations before us are forgotten I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. I don't think the whole suppressing their emotions and not talking about what they've gone through. Like I've, my parents have not told me ever about the war. And I know that they, like my sister told me that there was this one night that they pretty much, she tucked in her Barbies and they were pretty much going to die. You know, like they went through a lot, but they don't speak about it. And I think there is a need to speak out and have more representation of older generations and have things for the older generation. Cause I don't think it's ever too late. Like I don't think they got to live their life to their fullest. I feel like they, they deserve more, you know? Uh, it's really sad and it's really tough and it's really, it's, it's crappy really that um, a lot of, us um, or this generation, I guess, having to do the work uh, of the healing and stopping the trauma and stuff, and it's can be quite damaging to not have the support of parents that you love so much. But at the same time, I can so understand, you know, what you're saying with your family, right? Like going through war. My mom hasn't gone through war, but her parents have, and when she was a kid, a whole bunch of stuff happened, and when she was an adult, a whole bunch of things happened. I feel angry, <laughs> I guess, that someone that I love had to go through all of this. And that, unfortunately, maybe their coping mechanisms are a bit different and there is this whole toughen up attitude because for many, 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 many reasons, right? The help wasn't available, um, wasn't even a thing, like mental health. That can be true. And we can also have empathy and also figure out how do we enable the work to happen, not just for us, but for, for everyone. Because as you said, they, I kind of do feel like this, these people were robbed of the life that they could have lived. When we talk about this kind of stuff, like, Let's take university class or school class or a work environment and people who are at work there and next to them, you know, their colleague, colleagues, parents have gone through war. And that's something that they have to carry with them everywhere they go, even if they don't think about this actively and every day. It's not a thought that maybe happens all the time, but it's, you know, that intergenerational trauma (laughs) is present. Have you seen, I don't know, like, or maybe how has your experience been like in terms of maybe workplaces or 
environments where those things are not acknowledged. I've been in workplaces that have 100% supported mental health. and But I've also been in workplaces that have said that they support mental health and really not done well. I've started work for companies and um, asked them about their mental health before, like in the interview, and they've been like, yep, we're all about it. We can, we're fine with you going to therapy and then going into that and starting that work and then having them make comments that they're not trained. I think it's, it's the training, like they're not trained in mental health and I think it's as, just as important as first aid health. And it wasn't until I joined uh, ATOC a year ago where they had mental health trainees. They actually used to have a therapist come in each week and just sit, sit down and, like, available for anyone to talk to if you need to talk to her or him. Um, and they'd also turn around. Uh, they'd walk around the offices to see if there was anyone that looked like they were uncomfortable to have them actually understand that it is a thing and that they need to do something about it. So ATOC is Auckland Transport Operations Centre. It's a um, joint venture between Waka Kotahi and Auckland Transport. And so they've just got this room of like, oh, I would say 30 screens of all the network, of Auckland network. And they also look at all the state highways as well. And so there's a camera nearly most of the state highway. You can see all the cameras. And so they pretty much make sure that the journey, like your journey is run optimized, but they also deal with crashes and unplanned events and planned events. And, and yeah, so like they witness a lot of things that would affect their mental health. And let's say 20 years ago, I don't think anything would have been done. It's really, as you said, obviously there is a higher exposure to those things there, but still it's incredible to hear that there is support like that available to people. And I guess the question is, why don't we do that for everyone, everywhere? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, John Kerwin, I don't know if you've heard about his program. That's I heard about it this morning. It's called Mighty, and they're they're all about teaching resilience to primary school kids. And so it's a mental health program and they're trying to make it into a make it into the curriculum. And so it's compulsory for schools to teach uh, mental health, coping strategies and resilience at a primary school level. And I thought that was amazing. I, th- I was just like the whole time I was listening to it, I was like, yes, this is exactly what you need. Like I wish I had coping strategies when I was in high school. Like, there's so much bullying in high school or even intermediate and racism and things that are hard to deal with. Yeah, and then we grow up into adults that don't know how to cope with this and propagate that onto our children. <laughs> the same. Oh, I'd love to talk to you about your football. What is it? Yeah, tell me tell me more about your, your what you do currently. Yeah, so I play at Monaco United Football Club. But on top of playing, I also coach the under-8s. I manage the under-23s men's team. I take photos for the club. I do social media and a whole lot of other stuff. I do the merch as well. I designed a 
shirt, a jumper that had on the back of it anti-racism football club, kind of like the whole anti-social social club. <laughs> and it was all the reason that I do so much for the club and the reason that I'm so embedded in it is because of what they stand for and the values that come out of the club. And so for me, it just felt like me and the club were one. Actually, my therapist always tells me that I'm dating my football club. <laughs> She's like, whenever anything happens, you are always loyal to your football club. Yeah, I love the diversity, the inclusion, the ability to feel like I belong um, around so many different people from different places. Uh, I guess it's mainly because they're in a South Auckland area where things are a bit tough and it's also and it's kind of about being inclusive of everyone in that you know not everyone can afford to be a part of a football club but having the means to help out those around you um and it's not just that but it's also what the club does for others we run a tournament every year for Palestine and that comes back to, to like the football club kind of aligning a lot with me like I'm Palestinian and so the football club's half Palestinian <laughs> a lot of it is social media presence and a lot of sharing of stories which is important I think in being able to get anywhere is there any like I think I think I've read somewhere where you, talk, where you talked about inclusion of um, different religion or gender like I think it was specifically Muslim women and sports yeah what does that look like yeah, simple as uniform, being able, being being accommodating of what you wear and how you wear it, but also even just being aware of like Ramadan and fasting and holding events or things around that. For example, not doing events that might exclude Muslims during Ramadan or trying to find a means in that you're catering for all religions. It's wonderful to hear your experiences with your club. I, I love that. I have some quick five questions that I wanted to ask in the end. First one is my favourite. What is your favourite dish? Cake. 100%. I love cake. Banana cake with cream cheese icing. I used to be, I used to bake as a side hustle and I just made a lot of banana cake with cream cheese icing. Whenever anyone like ordered a cake, I'd be like, banana cake, banana cake, cream cheese icing. <laughs> I love that. I ate so much banana cake during lockdown because all of the frozen bananas that went off. Oh, yes. Same, same actually. And do you have any like um, dishes that maybe, especially, actually, I don't really know much about like Palestinian cuisine. Palestinian food. Oh, so my favorite Palestinian food is... Different cultures call it different things. So it's called Wada Ainab, but you might know it as dolma, and it's grapevine leaves boiled and then stuffed with rice. You actually can't buy good dolma anywhere. I'll have to invite you over. You'll have to come over for dinner one day. <laughs> Every single interview I've had, I've asked someone about their favorite dish, and they told me the dish from the culture, and then I said, where do I get it? And I said, you can't get it anywhere. You have to go. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we have to have a potluck at the end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do need a potluck. That is a great idea. I think that's a great call. We should definitely have a potluck. 
Yes, let's do it. Ella, if you could be the main character in the movie or a TV show, what would it be? I would make up a movie and call it How to Struggle. <laughs> <laughs> Is it going to be like a, like a, you know, a serious documentary or like a... No, no, it wouldn't be a serious documentary. It'd be a lot of, it'd be a, it'd be a comedy of my life. If you could propose one policy or like a change to New Zealand government or to like a workplace environment, what would it be? Free therapy for all people, do not dependent on age. Because at the moment there's a lot of like initiatives for younger teen- teenagers, but the older generation just need it just as much. Amazing. Love it. Love it. Um, and the last question is, I feel like I've asked you that maybe on story already, but let me ask you again. What makes you feel like a badass? I'm going to say something really nerdy. My Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm just like, once I have an Excel spreadsheet done for a holiday or for a work thing, I'm like, yeah, I did that. I'm cool. Amazing. Oh, I loved talking to you so much. I kind of, I kind of found it's like, you know what I said in the beginning, when you took on to your friend on your phone and landline. Yeah, I felt like that too. I really enjoyed it. I actually like was a bit nervous at the start, but I, especially like not having the cameras, I did feel like I was on the phone with a teenage high school friend, telling them all my secrets and venting a little bit. And I love what you've done. Honestly, I love, even though you say it's selfish, I don't think it's selfish at all. I think it's very selfless um, to put together all these people's stories and actually have representation out there. I think that's amazing. And I think it's awesome what you're doing. And yeah, love your work. (laughs) That was Ola. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in this series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio and Sport Waitakere. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund and to New Zealand On Air.